And that was such a emotionally overwhelming and cathartic experience. I just kind of like, I remember just like laying there on our table and just like starting to like heave with like sobbing, you know, this like never having actually acknowledged and spoken to my body like this entity, like not this, not my body is separate from me and my brain and my, you know, heart can exist outside of it, but like they're so intertwined and I had never acknowledged them, you know? Hi, everyone. Welcome to Undefined, where I have conversations with my guests about what it takes to shed the definitions that society somehow makes us believe we need to subscribe to. I'm your host, Marissa Tashman. Thank you so much for listening. And if you are new, welcome. I really appreciate you tuning in. This is a totally new venture and creative project for me. So all of the listeners I can get, I am deeply, deeply appreciative for. I just want to start with a quick announcement. I usually come out with an episode every two weeks, but as in two weeks, as I'm sure you all know, is the election, November 3rd, and I'm going to take that week off. So my next episode after this one won't come out until next month, so in four weeks. I felt like energetically it didn't feel aligned with me to put an episode out on the day of the election. I really wanted to focus on amplifying other voices and also just really, really encourage everyone to vote and just do your part as a citizen of the United States and protect the right to vote. If you can, go to the polls, do some volunteering. I've been doing some election protection work As a lawyer, that has felt really rewarding, also extremely challenging, but I think that it's really important for us to just focus on the election that week, and I did not feel right about putting out this type of conversation when the world that week, there's just so much heaviness, and I really wanted to, for myself, to go go inward, but then also to amplify some other voices besides my own, really. So this week, I am so excited to share my interview with E.B. Mearson. I was connected to E.B. through one of my closest friends, Matt, who was my co-clerk when I was working for the judge. And Matt and E.B. went to college together. They went to Georgetown. And E.B. now is a high school teacher, and she is also the founder of Maison de Mearson, which is a wardrobe consulting business for fat women. And she focuses on essentially reclaiming the word fat and body positivity. And my conversation with her truly lit me up. And I've noticed about myself, when something feels right, I feel this light inside of me. It's like I'm being lit up. So that is, is, is exactly how I felt after this episode. I remember I As some of you know, I am currently living at my parents' house while my condo gets remodeled, and I record in my mom's closet. She has a pretty large closet, but it's still kind of funny that I record in the closet. And I remember I came downstairs after recording that episode, and I was just so excited about the conversation that I had with her. So I hope that you guys feel as lit up as I did after listening to this conversation. We talk about so many different things. My show notes for this episode are going to be very long because we have so many awesome things to share with you all. Some of the things we talk about are being a first-generation American. We talk about EB's near-death experience and how that enabled her to have a deep gratitude for her body. 
We talk about holding trauma in our body, diet culture and systems of supremacy, the quote-unquote wellness diet. And we also talk about the trauma about of processing being in a fat or larger body. So this conversation truly is wonderful. Eby's also an activist, and that will come out through this conversation, which I think is appropriate for this time. And I'm very, very excited to share it. So I hope that you all enjoy. Awesome. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you. Well, let's get started. I'm very excited about this. Um, I'd love to start by hearing about a defining moment in your life, like something about a big choice you had to make, big mistakes, leaps of faith, heartaches, really just big growth moments? This is a great question. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think that I have definitely had quite a few moments of like taking a leap that I was almost shocked that in the moment I didn't think it was that big of a thing. But, you know, on further reflection, it turned out to be a much bigger thing. So I don't know if um, I had mentioned this to you or something, but I am originally from DC or I'm originally from New York. And then my family and I moved to DC in 1995. And so I grew up in DC um, with my very close knit um, Russian immigrant family. And parents, were they born in Russia? Yeah, they were both born in Moscow and then they separately immigrated to Israel. They met in Israel and then they came to the States. Interesting. And so, um, yeah, so, you know, even though it's it's a little bit weird thinking about this in terms of like, I mean, my parents like, a, you know, left a country that was like, if you leave, you're never going to have citizenship here again. And, you know, the Soviet state right. was such the a Soviet place state. where you don't ever look back, you know? Totally. Um, but in some ways, I kind of felt like, at least for them, um, I think maybe my move across the country was probably more surprising than maybe even their move you know, across two countries from uh, their families. So when I was 20, 21, I graduated from college and a month later I moved to California. Oh, wow. Um, and I know and, you went to Georgetown. So you were yeah, I went to close Georgetown to your family. family. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And so my mom actually worked at Georgetown, works uh, at Georgetown. And, you know, there was, I would drive her to work every day for a while. And, you know, I would come home to my parents' place every weekend, or I'd, I'd see my mom on campus all the time. So it was definitely kind of this like really big moment of like, I'm going to pursue this and I'm going to move to California. I'm going to go to this, you know, master's program and become a teacher. And I definitely think that for my parents, they were kind of like, well, why can't she be a teacher in DC? Right. Um, so I think like when I think of DC, I very much think like not necessarily of like the political world, just like, you know, people from LA, like you, right? Like right. you're from LA, but you're not, you don't necessarily associate it with like, you know, celebrities and blah, 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 blah. So it's exactly the same thing for somebody from DC that like, you know, there's an entirely different hustle and bustle to the city that is on, outside of their assigned industry. Right. Um, but I moved kind of because I just wanted, to, I really wanted to individuate to use like a psychology term totally what it was like to try this out on my own and um some might argue that or uh, there were times when some people argued that it was a catastrophic decision so Mm. in 2012 so I moved in 2011 and in 2012 I was in a like debilitating car accident oh wow um, on the 110 yeah and so like I got out of my car and then I was hit by another car and it was just like a year and a half of recovery. Like oh my God. Years. 
And during that time, that was probably the time that was filled with the most self-doubt because, you know, my family had flown out to Los Angeles a couple of times. They were with me like at Huntington Hospital while I was like, just like on the verge of death. And the whole time they were thinking like, why is she so far from us? Like we can't protect her. And that, that was almost like a question that I kept asking myself. So I was filled with so much self-doubt. Do you think that that question was mostly due to them asking it of you, like that, and that guilt maybe that mm. that brought you, or was it something internal that made you question? Ugh. You know, like if I if I wasn't in LA, maybe this wouldn't have happened. You know, I I think this is such a good question that you asked me because I am always struggling to understand what is truly internal in us when we've been conditioned so deeply by so many societal cues to believe certain things about ourselves. So um, what I mean is like, how do we know what we want when we're constantly looking at these external cues of, you know, what professionalism looks like or what um, a family life looks like. And those are almost like our indicators of desire in this world. So I I'm an incredibly stubborn person. And I actually remember, you know, speaking of Matt, his mom came to visit me at the, his mom came to visit me at one of, at the nursing facility where I was learning to walk again. And I was, you know, just like hanging out in my hospital bed. And she's like, so, you know, like, do you totally hate LA now? Like, do you totally hate it? And I was like, no, I actually, I really love this city. Um, and I realized that I have this like fierce, almost like stubborn, like, I just, I almost like dug my heels into the dirt and was like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to let the city like beat me like there's no way I'm not ever driving the 110 again there's no way I'm leaving this place like this is like I've decided to make this place my home right and I'm going to recover here and I'm going to like you know pursue my finish my master's degree here because I I had to take a semester off from um from grad school for that so it just became this like almost like this personal battle but yeah it was like a test of adversity almost yeah and it and it also I mean coming from an immigrant family like I think that our, the expectations of us as children of immigrants are definitely like a certain kind of unwavering loyalty to our family. So very often, you know, when an immigrant kid or like a first gen kid leaves their parents, they're the, the onslaught of (laughs) shit that they get is never ending, you know, your mother and I, or like your father and I, and and, (laughs) did um, you feel that coming from your family? Not at all from my dad. From my mom, I still feel it, actually. I Interesting. Think it's, it's been a very difficult process for her. Um, and and how, do you, how do you protect yourself against that? Oof. You and my therapist are asking the same question. <laughs> <laughs> and I know it's, you know, a journey and a lifelong yeah. process to learn how to put up that essentially like a bubble, you know, to protect your own energy. But I know from experience that that's really hard. It's unbelievably hard. The way that I protect myself from it is I'm learning to put loving boundaries up and loving kind of like, the reason I say loving boundaries is because there is a certain level of rejection that I think immigrant parents feel especially harshly because I was thinking about this a lot. Like they came to this country to make our lives or to make this, like they didn't even have kids when they got here. Right. And so they they ramped up this entirely new world and this entirely new world for their like hypothetical kids. And then their kids come into the world and they're, and they're like still foreigners in this land, but like 
they look at us and we represent this very strange place where like we are at home here, but we're also like of them. Right. So there, there, there becomes this chasm kind of between us because, you know, one of the things my mom always struggled with was that she wanted to make sure that we all speak Russian. And so Mm. I speak the best Russian out of, um, my, my two brothers and I were are her three kids. And so I've always been kind of more prone to learning language and sticking with the language. And I think for her, that's such an important part of it, but they are such, they still feel such an outsiderness in this country. And then to feel one of us like letting go of their hand, you know, mm-hmm. I think there's, there's a lot of pain there. Um, and it's really, really tough. The question you're asking is really tough because I think that's wrapped up in, I mean, understanding yeah. that they are vulnerable. I think that's totally. the way that I do it. They're and like showing, com- feeling compassion. Feeling compassion vulnerability. without capitulating. You know what I mean? Like I think compassion, it's almost like um, where do we kind of draw the line between a compassionate relationship and kind of like an almost like codependent relationship. Right. Because compassion essentially is kindness but with the ability to feel pain yeah at least that's kind of how I define it and also and how Pema children defines it (laughs) (laughs) but I think that there's I mean you have to take care of yourself first and it's so hard to do as a first gen kid because that is not like what we're that's not part of our culture you know? Do you think that that mindset is uniquely American? Ooh. Um, yes, I do. I think that that mindset is, it's weird because that's the mindset that all, or at least my experience with immigrants is like, they came here to pursue that. Right. Right. To, to pursue themselves and their own freedom above the, in my parents' case, like the oppressive institutional desire of their own right. country. And then um, it's like a catch-22. It is absolutely a catch-22 because then their kids do it and it feels like a betrayal. So I think, I mean, it's just unbelievably painful to be an immigrant. I think that's like what I've realized, you know. Totally. Um, I do want to go back to, I can maybe call it your near-death experience. Oh, please. Yeah. Um, I would love to hear about how that impacted your life after and just how it changed your perspective on things, if it changed your perspective on things. It Yes, 100%. Um, So when I was a kid, I was diagnosed with lupus. And for a really long time, I think that that was very much like a a narrative that was embedded in my kind of like, you know, everyone's got their own personal narrative that they would tell about themselves. Um, And mine was definitely affected by that. And so when I got in this car accident, so I'd been sick, blah, 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 sick, sick, sick. And then I got in this car accident and it was definitely um, affected by the lupus, you know, there were many different complications because of that. So, you know, I wouldn't, my body wouldn't take blood transfusions and Mm. all these other things. And it extended the process. And, um, I think I ended up having to do like, maybe have like something like eight or nine surgeries at the end of the whole thing. Um, this was over the course of a year. It was, yeah. From like December of 2012. And I think the last surgery I had with like, was like, maybe November of 2013, if I'm remembering it correctly. Um, But for a really long time, my 
stubborn desire to like not let you know California or the 110 or some dudes like little Toyota Camry like you know have bested me was I basically like I put all of my energy into you know I I had set myself a goal that by May of 2013 which is when I should have been uh, walking for my diploma I would be walking again Hmm. so the minute that I could be it's called like bilateral weight bearing so I could put Mm -hmm. my uh, weight on my legs again after like my pelvis had been um, broken, I started practicing walking immediately. And I was like hell bent on walking again. Um, so that was like, I was an incredibly driven patient in the inpatient facility. And I was also really stubborn because I also wanted to take my like credentialing tests and stuff like that. Um, but one of the results of this was that I never really dealt with any of the actual like embodied trauma of that accident. Mm-hmm. You know, like I was just like, I'm over it. Like it's fine. Right. And it would kind of manifest itself in many different ways. Yeah. How? Um, because I, I know think- we hold that we hold trauma in our body. I was listening to a podcast today that yeah. talked about how water has memory mm-hmm. and how we are 60 or 70% water. Mm-hmm. So imagine how much just that part of us holds. I think like the ways that it was, you know, in different stages, like I, I had a lot of trouble like dating for a really long time after the car accident, because I was just like, I'm covered in scars. Like I'm just absolutely hideous. And so, you know, in a way that this almost kind of connects to my, how I came to start Maison de Mearson was because like, I had so many, like, it wasn't just like, it was like covering up my body because of this feeling of like it being like like kind of an aberration you know like um, like not normal not normal um an entirely kind of like maligned like disabled kind of thing you know I've got this gigantic scar that goes from my hip down and it probably brought up the trauma all the time yeah and so like you know I wouldn't really let any like anybody get close to me or anything like that um and one of the ways that I I had never thought about this until you know, there, it would kind of like come and go and blah, 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 blah. And I, I only started to really directly address it many years later because I'm that good at like just being like, no, oh, yeah, fine. me too. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> the image that we put out into the world has to be perfect, right? It's perfect. And also it's like almost like a militant kind of hardness, you know? For sure. Like nothing can hurt you. And if you show that vulnerability, then that means you're weak and unlovable weak and unlovable. And I had this panic. I'm telling you, like, I was panicked that if anybody would like, almost like push me or anything, like I would fall apart, like Humpty Dumpty. Hmm. Yeah, totally. Like, like if you let it out, you would just not be able to bring it back together. And that was what I had experienced. I'd started going to see an osteopath. So like, um, um, a doctor who kind of does a lot of like, like work, you know, they lay you on a table and they're Mm -hmm. kind of like realigning and stuff. So I saw this woman in Santa Monica and I was telling her about this. And there was this moment where she was like, she's like, close your eyes. And I just, you know, I told her about all my stuff, my quote unquote, like medical history. And it was really interesting to hear her just be like, I just want you to like, close your eyes and like, just thank your body for carrying you through this time. Mm. And that was such a emotionally overwhelming and cathartic experience. I just kind of like, I remember just like laying there on her table and just like starting to like heave with like sobbing, you know, totally. this like never having 
actually acknowledged and spoken to my body like this entity, like not this, not my body is separate from me and my brain and my, you know, heart can exist outside of it, but like they're so intertwined and I had never acknowledge them, you know? Right. And to have that gratitude for our body and for experiencing whatever life throws at us through this body is like my perspective on that has recently shifted also. And it's, Mm. it changes how you view yourself and how you love yourself. And I think that's why, I think that's why I think that was such a transformative experience because frankly, like the car accident itself, I mean, honestly, it's like covered in a haze of like you know, painkillers, to be honest. Like I was in a hospital, but it's almost (laughs) like, exactly. It was like all the morphine. So I can't remember that experience. I think that was actually much more affecting for my family and friends who actually came to see me in the Mm -hmm. hospital. But the experience of, you know, the bodily trauma and the processing and, and acknowledging that my body is intertwined with me and I cannot exist without my body has been not just humbling, but also like it was, I think that created this like rift and this entirely different kind of shift in thinking. So do you feel like you have a lot more acceptance of your body after that? It's yeah. I mean, acceptance is maybe not a word. It's like a passionate advocacy for, right. You know, and there have definitely been times where I've been, you know, confronted with all sorts of questions, especially like, you know, during COVID and all these things, there are so many times when people say stiff stuff, kind of like off the cuff, um, not even realizing how dismissive it is of a body like mine. And I just find right. myself like being like, that's categorically untrue. And to say that is to like, forget the kind of miraculousness of our bodies collectively, that bodies aren't something that is like socially, you know, when we think of like what bodies are acceptable and which are not, we're forgetting about the fact that all bodies create this like, miraculous haven for somebody totally and we're fed this information that there's only one acceptable body type yeah and that has been a huge part of learning about this um a couple of years ago I took a disability studies class at Middlebury so oh, cool. I'm working on my master's from Middlebury College um that I do over the summers and I took a disability studies class with this incredible professor and I learned so much about the way that people try so hard to validate one normative body through policy, through um, even architecture, through all of these different things that are basically like, if your body can move in this space like so, you're good to go. Totally. Like our whole healthcare system. Entirely. Even like the obesity epidemic. Yeah, absolutely. That, That was actually something that was so interesting too, because it was, I was thinking about this from like kind of like this, the like erudite thinness. And what right. I mean by that is like the, the like intellectualization of like, okay, so like those who are, those who are thin, you know, have the kind of like intellectual capacity to have some sort of level of self, self-control over themselves. Right. Um, as, as opposed to like, and then those are the people who create the policy, who can implement the policy, but that policy is enacted upon bodies that, are fat, for example, totally, and are not quote unquote, you know, by these standards are not capable of making their own decisions. So it's this entirely ableist culture of like, let me talk about your body without your consent. Let me um, police your body without your consent. Even like, you know, one of the 
one of the ways that this is most evidently seen is let's let's take a private school for example. Like you went to private school, I teach at a private school. I think so much about um, the fact that like we have girls wearing skirts in school. Like, did, right. did you know that at your school? Yeah, totally. Except we would wear sweatpants underneath the skirt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, like a two thousand six through two thousand eight kind of. Vibe. Oh yeah. <laughs> Um, but I think about this a lot because, you know, girls get detention all the time for, you know, having their skirt be too short and something. And I was thinking about like, okay, so like these skirts are made for basically an ideal kind of like minimally curvy body. Right. But if a girl is curvier or if she's fat, then the skirt is going to sit differently on her. Totally. Inviting these kind of comments. And then you see the same shit on Instagram where yeah. um, like fat bodies, their their bodies get taken off of Instagram for like this violates community standards at an unbelievably disproportionately high That's rate. Insane, Com- especially and then add to that that black bodies and brown bodies on top of that, they get taken off Instagram even more often than that. So it's just it's it's so messed up because it shows where our priorities our priorities are never about health, right? right? And That's, it's just mirrors it mirrors this culture that's rooted in supremacy, whether that's you know, white supremacy, thin supremacy, whatever you want to call it. It's that culture of oppression that's created by the people in power. And I think like, you know, I, I think you and I were briefly talking about this. I, after having read Sabrina Strings's book, um, Fearing the Black Body. Right. I started thinking so much, I, you know, I started researching the, you know, the Puritan, the Puritan kind of movement. And then the kind of like the idea of even like, I just like Googled the expression, like pray the fat away. And there's so much like specifically Christian weight loss narrative going on here um, that could very easily be like, you know, there's also a chapter about um, in the book about like American exceptionalism as thinness and, um, and thinness as eugenics. And these, we can see where and how the justification keeps coming up for thinness as like the only possible way. Yes, totally. I know for me, like I've struggled with my own body image issues and I think it's just a result of the culture and maybe Mm -hmm. growing up in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. But I know that when I read, I'm about halfway through that book, Mm -hmm. but it's totally changed my perspective. And now I'm almost like, I'm going to love my body as a rejection of this white supremacist culture and I think an act of rebellion to love my I think an act of rebellion is the perfect way to describe it because like you know I was thinking about like it's really I mean it's kind of easy to hate diet culture in theory um but it's practically impossible to both uproot and eradicate diet culture from like our lives and our consciousness because it's just totally everywhere like oh yeah I think like um there's one person I follow on Instagram um, who's an essayist and uh, their name is at your fat friend, like why are fat friend. Oh, yeah. Um, incredible essayist. And uh, she had written an essay about like, she collects vintage diet books. And I started thinking about that, like, especially like, you know, in line with this kind of conversation about the quote unquote obesity epidemic. So her research was so fascinating about this because basically like diet books have been around, as you can imagine forever. And especially Probably where you are in um, Sabrina Strings' book, I remember that was around the part where they started talking about like, um, like kind of like the um, 
religious directives from all right. sorts of religious leaders, like, oh, pray this and blah, blah, blah. This will show your kind of morality um, and where it lies. And so your fat friend kind of talks about all of these different diet books throughout time show that this, that health is just the, the newest iteration of a false concern for fat bodies that can't, um, that can't be trusted to be autonomous, right? To right. have agency over their own bodies for fat. Now people, it's, it's like the wellness diet. Exactly. The wellness stuff. Like I'm just worried about your health. But before it was a question of like, do you have the self-restraint and the morality to fast, you know, um, right. do you have the, and then it was a question of a beauty standard. And, um, and it's interesting because like, I think beauty has absolutely been replaced beauty as a vague, unattainable and entirely culturally shaped word that represents some symbol none of us can quite put our finger on has just been replaced with health as a vague, unattainable, um, ever-changing, like moving target, right? Right. Um, And I've been trying to be very cognizant of that, especially because, you know, one of the things I really want to avoid and really want to be like conscious of is I don't want to find myself in that position or ever put somebody in the position where it's like, I'm saying like, oh, I'm fat, but I work out all the time or right. I'm, but I eat salads all the time because like basically, you didn't have to justify it. Exactly. It's this like the condition, the conditionality of it is very, it's incredibly ableist, right? Because like right. If somebody is fat and is not mobile. Why does that make their life inherently worth less, right? Than somebody right. who is, than who is mobile. Like we have to start like, we as individuals have to start looking at ourselves as like, in what ways am I kind of like perpetuating this idea that there's a certain kind of almost like productiveness that I'm supposed to create, right? Like I need to be productive or else I'm not worthy anymore. Totally. And that what's so fucked up about it is that that worthiness is translated into dollars through our healthcare, oh, through insurance yeah. and life insurance and all of those things. I think that's what's, what makes it so upsetting because like it's become so evident, especially during this pandemic, because I mean, I think like in particular, like creating these kind of like not just victims, but these kind of like victim boogeymen of like almost like COVID carriers from fat. Right. Totally. Christy Harrison wrote a really interesting article about, she essentially just shut down the argument that, you know, if you're fat, you're more at risk. Yeah. I I'll think that, link it in the show notes. It's it's really good. Okay, great. Yeah, because I'm I'm, I'm I want to read that as well. I I think like there you know there's so many different places where this like manifests itself, and I think in the doctor's office especially this is where that kind of trauma also manifests itself. Totally. I've been to the doctor before many times, and like before they even like a take my blood or my blood pressure or anything like that, they're like, okay, so this is the very first thing that you need to do is you need to you know lose this amount of weight, and it's like hold up, pump the brake. I just have a cold. Dude. <laughs> right. Because so like you know, prescribe me some like antibiotics and like, I'll be out of the, out the door. But you know, there's this immediate kind of assumption that I must be corrected. My body needs to be, you know, acted upon and I don't have the, the self-restraint, you know, kind of like morality to be able to control myself from like, um, and I think like the self-control also is really interesting because it's absolutely something that is 
an example of trying to control women's bodies. Totally. And it's interesting now you're working with other women um, and, you know, translating your knowledge or uh, transferring your knowledge to them and helping them process all of that trauma. And I'd love to hear about your motivation for starting it and how you've been able to help women kind of process all of this trauma that we've been talking about. Oh, um, and also describe, just give like a little. Oh yeah, sure. So um, I started a personal styling service called Maison de Mirson, which is my last name, and I just love. I think I, love I, the name. My, I used to like tag my parents' house whenever I would like take pictures of stuff there. I'd always like tag it, you know, Maison de Mirson or something. Maison means house. Yes, right? house. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I it came actually as a result of this a graduate kind of almost like quasi thesis that I was writing for this, the same professor with whom I took that disability studies class on this idea of like, um, trying to disrupt concepts of productivity. So the idea was to write kind of like these creative pieces and have some sort of visual element to them. It might be a poem, it might be an essay. So one of them, for example, um, one of my essays is called like evangelize me. And it talks about the kind of Christian underpinnings and the Judeo-Christian, but in particular, Christian underpinnings of kind of like starving oneself as this attempt at kind of getting close to like a godliness. Right. And why do we associate, you know, like Jesus starving in, in the in the desert for 40 days or like St. Anthony and, um, and um, other, you know, big hitter Catholic saints, if you will. And why does that narrative of self-starvation equal martyrdom and something to be so proud of? Um, Interesting. And so I, I really wanted to have these kind of like almost kind of like creative pieces and creative writing pieces because I'd never really done much creative writing, you know, in my first master's or finishing up this master's degree or, you know, even like an undergrad. So I really wanted to explore this avenue of like thinking about writing about the body in a way that isn't medicalized. It's not um, sterilized, but it's like this entirely embodied feeling of like, well, when, when do I get to feel like myself and feel like I just belong and not cover myself up and not, um, pursue this. And so the goal in Maison de Mirson is that it's an entire kind of like consciousness overhaul. So I just categorically refuse to style somebody according to like, oh, this will make you look thinner, or this is more quote unquote flattering, or this is kind of going to like, try to shave you down. Because I think that that's, that is, you can go anywhere else for that, right? Like Stitch right, Fix you're has just playing into the, the culture. Exactly. And I noticed on your website that you talk about reclaiming the label fat. Yes, 100%. I think like, Lindy West had a, um, I don't know if you know who Lindy West is, but she was I a writer. And uh, the Hulu show Shrill was based off of her, I think, um, memoir. So that's like the one with A.D. Bryant. If you haven't watched it yet, okay. it's so, so good. I will. Um, but she talks about coming out actually as fat and just the idea of like, yeah, call me fat. There doesn't have to be stigma attached to it unless you attach stigma to it. And right. so, <clears throat> you know, in some ways it's kind of like if a black person's like, yeah, just like call me black. You really don't need to say like African-American. Like it's quite possible they're not African-American and that's just like a super, you know, like somebody superimposing their assumptions onto them. Right. Easier. And um, I would say that it's kind of the same thing as, you know, when people say like, oh, like, you know, like all of the, all of the different euphemisms almost end up being kind of like 
shittier because you can see somebody go through the mental acrobatics of trying <laughs> to avoid saying the word that they associate with negative stuff. Like that right. just re- reveals so much more about the speaker themselves, um, their assumptions, right? Like, what do you think is the most common ooh. alternative used? Like overweight? Oh, that's a good question. Because that is, I mean, I feel like I hear that. I think that's like a medical term. You know, it's funny. I I can't even, I have no idea because one of the things that I've noticed is that fat is also, um, (laughs) I had kind of a funny story. So I was on a texting thread with my friends, including Matt. And I was just like, I was talking about this podcast with Lindy West when she was with Ira Glass. And she said, I'm just coming out as fat. Like that's just what's happening. (laughs) And I remember saying like, yeah, I think that's a really good idea. Like I'm also going to come out as fat. And my friend said, no, 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 you're not fat. You're beautiful. And it was so interesting because it's so clear that the dichotomy has been set before anyone even like they don't, they just choose not to see me that way because as if you can't be fat and beautiful. Exactly. And it's, it's, it just reveals so many of our cultural nightmares, you know, like everybody's terrified of gaining that like COVID 15 or whatever. And it's because of this collective nightmare that they have that has been fed to them. So I'm trying to, I'm literally, I'm actually really trying to think very hard about what would be said. So obesity. And maybe people just like avoid saying it. That's, that's what's really funny is like, so you can like hear them kind of stammer. It's like the new, like, um, when somebody's like, did you ever have that thing where like somebody would be afraid to like call us Jewish? And they'd be like, um, uh, you're, and you could just like see them being like, is it okay for me to say Jewish? And it's like, yeah, dude, it's fine. (laughs) It's exactly like that where they're like, you could just see them kind of trying to figure out like, what should I call her? Is she okay with this? And so I've even noticed that calling myself fat in front of people actually doesn't even change that. Like I think they nonetheless are scared to say it themselves Hmm. because, um, because like, man, I have no idea what it is, but I think they don't want to offend you. They're afraid of that. I know them not saying it is offensive. Them not saying it is is offensive because it shows that they think that it's an abomination. Right. Totally. And so like, you know, I think about this a lot of the time when people are talking about like, oh my God, like I've gained weight and stuff like that. And they're like clearly smaller than me. And it's like, okay, so like if you're freaking out about you, what does that say about your subconscious thoughts about me? Right. You know, where it's like, oh my God, like she's, she must be so unhealthy or like, she's like (laughs) one of the things that I feel like people, they don't say that so much now, but they probably do like on YouTube or something like, oh, if somebody's like eating themselves into the grave, you know, like (laughs) just like who knows what the subconscious messages that they have that they can't even bring themselves to bring to the conscious, to their conscious because they love me, but their subconscious has been so affected by these cultural narratives of this is unhealthy. This is not okay. I mean, even starting from like, when was it that Michelle Obama had her anti-obesity push in the White House? Like, Oh yeah, I remember that. was that. a big part of it too. I think like, you know, for such a long time, people have associated that with like an important step in right. challenging some American structures. But I, I wonder if they ever thought, thought about, like, yeah, how that contributed to the conditioning. Yeah, how that contributes to people's conditioning that this is an abomination and I must be super unhealthy and I must be on my way out. Or even if I am super unhealthy, that 
like that's that's the tricky thing is like let's imagine that somebody's super unhealthy like i i don't know of many other conditions other than fatness where people have derision towards somebody who's sick like somebody who's got lung cancer i've never seen somebody say to somebody who's got lung cancer like go fucking kill yourself do you know totally. what i mean totally yes and so that describes this like the hatred is so deep rooted it's so right. deep rooted that I think that's why people are afraid to say fat. Even when I've been just been like, dude, I'm fat. It's fine. <laughs> we know. Calm down. Well, I think it's that, that I think it's awesome that you're reclaiming the label fat. And that's what I'm and really hoping women do that for themselves. Yeah. And it's a process. Like the process includes, um, you know, my former client and I, or my previous client, she and I just did like kind of an exit interview kind of thing. And we were talking about like, one of the first things I wanted to do was I asked her to start you know, on Instagram, think of how much time we all spend on Instagram, right? Right. I asked her to start following a bunch of fat influencers. I've Um, done that. And it's, it's curating your feet. Yeah, exactly. It's like changing this algorithm of the messaging that we receive, right? So, you know, when she started out, she was talking about like, oh, I just, you know, I really want to reach this goal weight or like, I feel like I can't really start doing this until this. And I just, the minute I saw that, I was like, I understand what's happening. She's only seeing one image of what it means to be a a woman or be an appropriate woman or like happiness is only presented in one package to her. And she, she admitted, she was like, you know, at first when you told me to do that, I was like, Oh my God, what a, like, what a kind of like a hoax. Right. And she said, and no joke, like within two days of following more fat influencers, I felt like this, like identity weight had been lifted off. of Wow. That's amazing. I was shocked at how, how surprisingly well it worked. Like, and that's how, that's almost, <laughs> that's more of a testament to how much this imaging and these messages condition us. And honestly, how potentially if people wanted to, they could uproot this. It's just like, think of how many people benefit off of us hating our bodies. Oh my God. <laughs> so, so many, many people. people. So I don't know why it would ever be worth it to people. So it almost becomes kind of more of like a, it has to be a grassroots thing because it's never going to become a systemic thing unless- right. Do you have a list of Instagram accounts? I'd love to link to them. Oh my god! Um, sure. Yes. Let me find. You can just you can just email it to me after. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, I think that's great, and I also think I really want to promote. This is something that I'm personally struggling with myself, but I really want to promote, especially people of color and Black women, um, right? Particularly because Black women have been at the forefront of plus size fashion before it was like ever a thing. You know, like back when totally. Plus sizes, especially in like the night, you know, my mom always struggled with her weight and she was always like, oh, like these clothes are not that fashionable. And I'd be like, let's put a belt on it or something. But, you know, um, that's been something that that's where the influence of black women is so critically important. And I in particular want to talk about one person who I think is just she's incredible. So she's a stylist or sorry, she's a designer and um, her company is called Jibri. So J-I-B-R-I. I love her so much because her clothes are so beautiful, so innovative. Um, and I think like, you know, whenever I think of what kind of like an upscale designer would I like to imagine being sold at like Neiman Marcus, like, you know, when Neiman Marcus and Saks finally get their heads out of their asses and finally <laughs> start to cater to like the 66% of American women. Right. And not for size. Like, guys, just you're like box shirts. Yeah, exactly. Like, 
when they're ready to just get their shit together, I want to see her in their stores, but she's, she's incredible. Um, it's awesome. Uh, so yeah, I will, I'll link you to all those people. That would cool. be great. How do you start working with someone? Like, what does that process look like? Um, so I, I'm working out the details of moving forward here, but the, the most important thing is I want to meet them. So right now, obviously we're in a pandemic, so I'm not, I'm obviously not bopping over it to anybody's house, but we do like a zoom call or a, um, you know, Google meet or some sort of video call where I just like want to introduce myself. And then I send them a questionnaire that I spent quite a bit of time creating. And the questionnaire is to me, what's really important is that I really wanted to focus on like what feeling somebody wants to have in clothes rather than how they want to look in their clothes. Um, You had a, you had a recent Instagram, I think it was in your Instagram post about dressing up and about how dressing up grounds you because it mm. de- you said dressing up grounds me because it demands something of me, a presence of mind and a self-assurance. It helps me to feel fully in my body and grateful to be here. Yeah. Um, that's, that's part of, I think that's part of the process that I really appreciate about dressing up and hopefully create for somebody else. Because like when somebody is, I think the difference between dressing up and dressing down is like when you're dressing down you're trying to hide parts of yourself and you're trying to minimize yourself, right? So like, right. oh, like if I wear this, then it's it's just going to show too much of my tummy or like, you know, I, I have to make sure to do that. So, you know, like to hide my arms or something like that. So when I think of dressing down, I don't think of it as like, oh, like, you know, just like not so fancy. I think more of it as like a, it's, it's almost like a feeling. A, it's a feeling and it's a feeling of hiding oneself and, erasing oneself and trying to draw attention away from oneself. And that's so much of what fat people are taught to do is like, Mm -hmm. go stand in the background. Don't laugh too loud. Don't eat in front of other people, like literally just disappear into the wall and dressing up. I think comparatively speaking is almost like, let's be so physically here and so physically yourself and so physically joyful that there is no question about whether or not you were there. Right. And it Uh, sounds like through that questionnaire, you try to get at those feelings. And I really try to, you know, one of the questions in the questionnaire is also like, what do you want to thank your body for? Because I think that that's so good. Like universe, unfortunately, universally, if I see another fat person in a room, like she and I can, she or they, or he, and I can look at each other and we probably have that weird unspoken thing where like somebody says like, oh my God, you're so brave for wearing that. Or like, I love your confidence. And it's like, we have that unspoken thing of like, oh yeah, I've heard this shit before. Because it's, like, <laughs> it's just, you just know, like, you know, these like random ass microaggressions and stuff like that. Um, and I think that for somebody to be told specifically like, no, your body is miraculous. Thank it. Because that was such a transformative experience for me. I think that it almost, it pre- it sets the stage for we're going to be grateful to be here and we're going to celebrate this because that is the bare minimum that our body deserves is to be totally. celebrated. Definitely. I So I work with um, like an intuitive eating counselor, but she mm-hmm. does a lot of just body image work generally yeah. and women's empowerment. Her name's Simi Bodich. My episode with her actually will be released tomorrow, which I'm very excited <laughs> about. But she had me do a really awesome exercise. It was a journaling exercise where I wrote a letter from my mind to my body and then from my body back to my mind. 
Wow, that's amazing. It was incredible. And I've done it two, a couple times, I think. And, you know, different stuff comes up each time. But it was amazing for those two entities. You know, they're not separate, but mm-hmm. they are somewhat separate mm-hmm. to write to each other. What, how did you, which one was harder for you? So it was harder for, I'm thinking about it. It was, I think it was harder for my mind to write to my body Mm. because my tendency would be to be unkind, especially when I was doing this at the beginning. I started working with her about a year ago Mm -hmm. and now I'm in a totally different place with Mm -hmm. my body and just the love that I have for myself. Yeah. But it was interesting to see what came up when I wrote it from my body to my mind, because it was coming from a place of like, please be grateful for me. Mm-hmm. Like I work so hard and so hard, so hard. Like I remember there was one time where I was walking to work mm-hmm. downtown when I was clerking and I looked at myself in the reflection of a mirror. And I'm, I know I'm not, I'm not a fat person. Like I know yeah. that you know, like I, I have thin privilege, but I still struggle with some of these body image issues. Yeah. And I was looking at my reflection in, in the mirror and I have like a pretty big butt and pretty big thighs. Mm-hmm. And I just was so critical of myself looking mm-hmm. at my reflection. And then later I kind of reframed it as like, I love to go hiking. I love to run. I love to walk and look at what like my big butt and my big thighs allow me to yeah. do. Yeah. I think that's like, you know, it's so funny, like how, how quickly we do that. Anytime we look at our reflection, we just immediately start to just destroy ourselves. Like that, totally. that the first instinct, you know, right. And I, it had taken me so long and, you know, like, I'm, I'm sure this is an experience that you've had, but like, it's an inherited thing from our moms too. Like the way that our moms oh, yeah. would talk about their bodies or even like when they would say, you know, the funny thing is like, um, anytime my mom would be like, Oh, like, are you sure you want to eat that? And it would be like, well, now I can't enjoy any of this because at any point in time when I was trying to enjoy it, now I realize that you're judging me for it. And now it's like, now I'm eating like under your gaze or something. Oh my like God. That. My ex would do that to me all the time. Oh! <laughs> it killed me. <laughs> I I mean, I feel like that would just like end in like murder. <laughs> I would be like. <laughs> I mean, I basically just suppressed my emotions because that's the state I was in at that time. And that but was- looking back on it, you know. <laughs> Yeah, like it makes like I'm like, how could I have dealt with that? But you know, it brought me to where I am, and I've processed a lot since then, so it's all good. So that I mean, that's I think that's the thing is like we can't grow and we can't process without having all had this almost like these universal kind of experiences of like I had to swallow my tongue so many different times, and holy shit, what has that taught? Like swallowing my tongue has taught me so many. Maybe that would be something like, you know, if I were writing, if I were writing a note from my body to my mind, I think my body would say like every single time that you kept your mouth shut, I felt it in my body. Mm. You know that feeling of like the lurch in your stomach when totally. someone has something shitty to you and you like don't have, you know, I always loved having a good like backup 
fuck you or like insult to come, you know, to come right. back. Like you, you're never prepared for that. No. You know? And then you think about it after and you're like, damn it, I could have said all of these things. I, I know you like have that list after the fact. Like, yeah. Where was this then? But you it know, almost feels like a gagging for me, at least. Uh-huh. A gagging and kind of like a, like the gut punch of like, this person loves me and they could say something like that to me. Right. Or I love this person and I, in my love for them, I stay quiet. Why did I just do, why did I do that? Why did I put this person before my own body? Right. Yeah. yeah. And you should never put any person before your own body. But that's you should never put any person before yourself, except maybe your own children. Not, I mean, I don't have children. Well, I'm not ready for that. Oh. <laughs> yeah. But I, I uh, always think about this Glennon Doyle quote. I think about mm. this all the time. And she talks about it in her book. Mm. That the last person you should disappoint is yourself. And she talks about it in the context of she's interacting with her daughter and she's having this realization that she's constantly trying to avoid disappointing other people and then she ends up disappointing herself and that's not the example that she wants to set for her daughter but I think about that all the time because it's so true it's so true because like think of how many times we looked at our moms and they were saying some shit about themselves right where we learned it and it's like totally it's so it's so tragic like because it's a mother who has been able to like shield herself from all, I mean, even like the, the, you know, when people come up to a pregnant woman and they just like start unsolicited, like unsolicited, they just grab her body. I'm like, oh Get my God. Off of her. what are you fucking doing? But that happens all the time. I know. It's just so disgusting. It is disgusting. And I have a distinct memory of, and I don't blame my mom for this at all because I know for her it's the result of, you know, societal conditioning essentially and, you know, her mom and then her mom mm-hmm. and her mom and it goes back however many generations. But when we would be shopping and in a dressing room together, she would always be speaking so unkindly about her own body. And my mom, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm around the same size as my mom now, but when yeah. I was a kid, you know, I'm looking at her and I'm like, okay, well, I guess you know, if she's not happy with her body, then there must be something wrong with it. And that means there's probably something wrong with mine. I think that that's, um, that's a very interesting thing to think about, because it's like, they're looking at their body, you're, you're learning to look at your body through your mom's eyes, but they're not even necessarily her eyes either, because she learned that somewhere too. Totally. And that goes back to what you said at the beginning about how are our desires really ours or are they a result of the conditioning? I was thinking about, um, you know, one of the things that I kind of had noticed my mom doing, and I've, I've always wondered about this. And obviously this isn't the kind of stuff that I'm going to call her up about and be like, what the fuck dude. But when I was a kid, um, one of the experiences that I feel like I had very much, one of the questions that you wanted to ask me, um, on the podcast was, was there ever a time when you like, um, you know, what definitions and labels have you struggled with the most? One of the definitions I'd struggled with was this autonomy over my body since I was a child, because I remember like, even as a kid getting like picked up by people I didn't know, or like touched by people, you know, like family right. friends, like, Oh, like, you know, can I give you a hug? And it's like, and I remember almost kind of wanting to say like, no, you can't, or just like, and then getting judgment from my mom or kind of like, you know, getting chastised by her for being like, no, like, this is our family friend. Like, why would you give them a hug? Yeah. 
Exactly. And I think about this a lot because that was a learned, clearly that was a learned behavior of hers from feeling like her body was there to please other people who wanted access to it, even if she felt uncomfortable. Totally. Um, you know, from when she was a kid onward. And I, I think that that's the kind of stuff that's a learned condition as well, because like, it's exactly like what you're talking about with, with your mom talking about her body and you learned that. Then I learned from my mom that my priority was to please other people's, not exactly even desires, but like other people's wants before I even consider voicing what I wanted. Right. And that's so powerful and can carry into other aspects even besides your own body. Very much so. But I think like we start to see that, like we start to see it so much when people start to feel within their body and a lot I think a lot of stuff comes up too you know like right um that's why it's such an emotional I've noticed that this is a very emotional process the like styling service is a very emotional process for um it had been for my client and I can't imagine that it won't be for other clients because it it requires a certain level of like when did I silence my body to listen to other people above myself and right people feel a lot of pain from that yeah and you almost have to grieve that Yes. There's a lot, there's actually, there's so much grieving that happens within the process of trying to unlearn self-hatred. Totally. Because self-hatred was almost like, it's, it's like, it's a blanket kind of like, if I can look at my, if I look at my body and I'm like, shit, I got to change this, 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 this. That's so, that's such a learned trait that I know that and I feel comfortable in it. But if I stand squarely in front of a mirror and just like love on every part of myself, that's uncomfortable because it's so out foreign. of the- Exactly. It's so foreign. Totally. But then that's like an act of positive defiance. Yeah. And it can be very empowering. Yes. But there and- is a lot of pain that comes from that for sure. And I've never known anyone whose pain, whose growth has been painless. Like Right. Know. Of course. Of course. Um, I'd also, I'd love to talk about your, you know, you're a teacher also, and there's these two roles that you have with teaching and starting your business. And it seems like there's these two sides to you. And I'd be curious to hear about how you bridge that gap between the two aspects of who you are. Like for me, I have, I do this podcast, I'm very Mm -hmm. spiritual and I have this mystical free spirited side. And then I'm a lawyer and very, you know, militantly disciplined. So bridging that gap has been a challenge and I'm, it's of course a journey, but I've learned that both of those sides are sides to love, but I'd love to hear about that process for you. Well, if you remember being in high school, then you can probably remember being obsessed with your teachers. Like, just like, what do they do on the weekend or (laughs) like all this kind of stuff. And so there's a lot of attempting to like dodge some kids, you know, when I'm like living my actual life. Right. Um, so, you know, if I ever run into somebody at the grocery store, I'm like, okay, this is my off time. Thank you. Good to see you. <laughs> Goodbye. Um, but it's one of the things that I think is really hard about it is that I am very passionate. I'm a very passionate person. And I don't think that anyone would ever say that they, you know, don't know where I stand on something, you know? Right. So I have tried to create a space in which the kids don't 
the kids definitely have no doubt where I stand on things, mm-hmm. but I think that they also understand that where I stand on things is not necessarily the goalpost that they feel they need to be at. Right. Um, which I think is, it's, it's tar, it's hard because it's definitely like part of the process is learning and trying to teach kids to, to be aware of their surroundings there's a certain level of like patience, but also interrogation because one of the best things about kids is that they will show you stuff that you either have not seen or have been incapable of seeing right. as long as you like let them talk. Mm-hmm. Um, so totally. the, I would say that the, the thing about being a teacher that I love the most is how much of a mirror it holds up to you. Like I love it. And it's also terrifying, right? Like right. kids will, kids will say like, Oh yeah. Like, well, whenever you're eating a salad, like I know you're pissed. And I'm like, Oh shit. Like, I didn't know <laughs> Cause that you was- have so much impact, so much impact. And they see you in a way that if it's unflattering, like you probably need to see that unflattering image. Right. And right. It's totally a mirror. It's a mirror. And it's, it's sometimes it's incredibly cruel and, you know, kids can very much be cruel, but they also, um, they at least you realize that you're like t- they're turning into adults like they're right. they're learning how to live in the world and you are in some way hopefully guiding them and also giving them space to make mistakes and then come come back from those mistakes right i think that's amazing um and it's wild it's a wild yeah, that's so it's so cool I I would also love to hear, kind of going back to what we were talking about before and being in your body, how do you practice getting in your body? Like I have a tendency to intellectualize my emotions and my thoughts, and I've been really trying to process more through my body by getting into my body. And I'd love to hear about how you do that for yourself, because I know that you, you also think a lot and you... Oh yeah. You know, intellectualize things in the same way. That is the hardest thing for me to do is to like, I can convince myself of anything um, because I can, I can really think myself into a tizzy. So right. This has been a very hard process. And I think this is why I actually really, really love like clothing and getting dressed because that's, it's an example of actually feeling very much like in my body is almost like taking the time, like a meticulous approach to getting dressed as almost like a, a construction of self every single morning. And so Mm. I've been trying as, as much as I possibly can to try to get dressed for every single day of work, you know, like a blouse, some earrings, something that goes with that, because it almost kind of makes me feel like it's almost like just like touching my earlobes when I put in my earrings or like um, like styling my hair or something like that. Like these sound like such, such trite little actions, but it's like the, it's the contact with my limbs. It's the contact. It's like actually feeling my hands. It's feeling my legs and especially my legs because they've got scars on them. That has been something that like, I have been working very, very hard on being very intentional about touching my legs. And like, you know, for example, if I put on pants or a skirt, like I always want to make sure to like run my hand up my like left, um, left thigh, like where my scar is, because I, I want to like remind myself of this thing that like is absolutely a part of me. And yet like, I've like 
kind of like moved beyond it. Totally. One thing- and another reminder of how grateful you are for your body. Exactly. It's this, it's it's it feels very much like a mindfulness practice just to to look at myself and to be like, okay, like now I'm going to take the time to construct the different pieces that I want to be like definitely up right now. I love that. I think that's so beautiful. It's it's definitely been very helpful. Another thing that I've been doing is I've been I'd always been um very reticent about crying because I was like, no, this is like a sign of weakness. Or Me something. too. <laughs> like literally never cried and have, wouldn't even cry in front of my parents. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Or I'd even, I'd even kind of be like, sort of like there would be a certain level of derision in my voice whenever I saw somebody else crying. Um, but I've, I've really <laughs> leaned into the crying. <laughs> Tried to let it out. Yes. And, and I've noticed that, I mean, listen, right now is the perfect time to, to explore these things, like especially totally. in a cataclysmic world right now. But um, I can feel, it feels so like soothing to cry. Totally. Like a self-soothing, you know, and I think about this a lot, like, you know, with kids, when they cry, we tell them like, stop crying, like get a hold of yourself. But actually, to me, I realized that like, crying and even almost like kind of getting to that point a little bit where it's like it's out of control crying and kind of like almost like a heaving kind of thing I've allowed that to happen more as an example of like if I can if I can get to kind of like almost like a state of like this is a lot and I am crying a lot and it it feels like a full body cry then once that's happened it feels like such a catharsis it's a release yeah, such a release and so, Total. so like, it's weird. It kind of feels like a form of self care. Definitely, I just totally like, agree. I'm just gonna have like a little cry, and you know, like, and it's gonna be. It's not necessarily a sad thing. It's just that like my body has been holding this, and right, and emotions out. are emotions are energy, and our body is are, is holds it. So we have to let that energy out. And crying is one way you physically are letting tears out too. But then there's also the other things that are happening in your body when you're crying. But it's, it's kind of interesting how much like, that's a message that I absolutely internalized how much that is something that we hate, you know, and like right. we put it in other people, we kind of like squash it, you know, um, how often we say to boys like, Oh, don't cry, like man up and stuff. And it's yes, like, totally. like, where did we learn that this is an unacceptable behavior and it, I mean, I I, that also, it reminds me a lot of this kind of like, kind of moralistic, like puritanical self-restraint, just like, right. you know, don't eat too much or like, kind of like, don't let yourself get too fat. It's kind of like, don't let yourself feel fully both the highs of like the height of pleasure and the absolute depths of despair. Don't ever allow yourself to get to that point. Right. You know? Yeah. I love that so much. So I have some ending quick fire questions. Ready. And these are just sort of meant to be the first thing that pops into your mind. Okay. What book are you reading right now? Ooh, I am reading um, Toni Morrison's Playing in the Dark. Awesome. What was the last meal you had? Ooh. Well, I had that iced coffee like a few hours ago. <laughs> um, and before that, I had a... Um, I just got back from a trip. So I had like a frozen thing in the freezer that I was looking forward to. It's kind of like a 
chicken and like jicama. Ooh. Yeah, it was it was kind of weird, but it kind of worked out. Chicken jicama mushroom thing. So yeah, yeah. When you imagine your happy place, where is it? Mm. Ooh, that's a great question. Um, there's a lake in upstate New York that my family and I used to go to when we were, when I was a kid and I have no idea where the lake is, but I just kind of remember being there as a kid. Um, and my mom would like hold me and sing songs to me. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. If you could speak to yourself 15 years ago with the knowledge you have now, what would you say? Be kind to others. Because being mean does not undo the hurt that you've experienced. That's beautiful. And last one, since we've been talking so much about becoming undefined and Mm -hmm. deconditioning ourselves, what definitions do you feel are true to you? I think that I'm a very kind person. Um, And I feel very, I feel people's feelings very strongly. I also think that I am expansive, um, both in body, and I really want to be in an expansive body that chooses to take up space, but also expansive in the things that I want to experience and the people that I want to meet and help. I love that. And lastly, where can everybody find you? Ooh, um, you can find me at, at Maison, M-A-I-S-O-N, de Mearson, M-E-E-R-S-O-N on Instagram and my website. And somebody suggested to me that I make a Facebook, but I, like, I got to pump the brakes on that one. Yeah, I don't ever go on Facebook <laughs> either. <laughs> uh, so it's www.maisondemearson.com. Awesome. And I'll link to that stuff also in the show oh, notes. And are, is there anything else you felt like you wanted to say or things to recommend? You know, now's your your chance to tell the whole world who is listening. <laughs> um, I think that when we look at beauty and when we think about what is and isn't beautiful or what is and isn't desirable, I encourage people to Um, interrogate those thoughts, especially if they come with a certain level of like vitriol either toward, you know, directed at oneself or directed at at other people and interrogate those thoughts and wonder like, where did I learn this? Because somebody is benefiting off of me thinking these thoughts. And hopefully that can make people kinder to each other. And perhaps more importantly, rather than just individual kindness, but actually bring about some sort of systemic recognition of inability for our society to actually change. I love it. That is so true. And everybody really should think about that. Yeah, I hope And so. thank you so much. I absolutely loved this interview. Oh my God. Thank you. I, I was so glad to do this. That I mean, It's been a long time coming, but it's just been so delightful to sit down and talk with you and, and really like <laughs> articulate the things that I've been thinking about, but I always, you know, I always articulate them better when I've said them out loud. So thank you for of giving course. me the space to make that happen. Oh, so happy to. Yay! 
Hello again. I hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. I truly felt, as I said at the beginning, lit up by it. After my interview, I feel like I like couldn't stop talking about it because it just was so great. And she is amazing to talk to and just really an incredible woman who has so much perspective and value and I just, I feel like I could have talked to her for like hours and hours and hours. So I hope that that came through. I have included many links in the show notes, including where you can find EB on her Instagram and her website. So please take a look. And I really would appreciate if you reviewed and subscribed to my podcast, as I say every week, but I really appreciate you listening and continue to tune in. As I mentioned at the beginning, I will not be coming out with an episode on election week. Please go vote if you haven't already. It is so, so important. Even if you live in a state like California where you might feel like your vote doesn't matter, it does matter. And it matters for the local elections and all of the props. So please, please vote. And I will also amplify some other voices that week. And I will talk to you all in four weeks. I hope that you have a great month and talk to you soon.